welcome to the extras. Um, I'm here with Lachlan and hi. Yeah, this is Susan speaking. I guess I have to say that you can't see me. <laughs> um, and this is my first time on the extras. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, it's it's uh, exciting. It feels fun to be recording this. Um, Better to have someone to talk to than me interviewing myself, which is what it would have been otherwise. <laughs> It would be an interesting introduction to you joining the staff <laughs> team and just having you talk to yourself the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're dealing with questions from Sunday. Um, as most of you will know, we've been going through Psalms. Uh, hopefully you guys have been able to read one a day throughout January. And so we were up to Psalm 22 on Sunday. Uh, and that was a that was a really heavy Psalm, Lachlan. Mm. It mm. was... Yeah, it was really something to sit in that lament. Did you mm. want to recap a bit of that psalm to us? Yeah, it, you're right. It is heavy. One of the commentators of reading does talk about it as the darkest of the laments in the mm. psalms. Uh, but that's where God's word took us in our plan. And so sometimes we have to sit with that. And that is the reality of life, that life is hard. Look, Psalm 22, uh, we broke it down and saw, on the one hand, God feels very distant uh, sometimes God does feel a long way away. Alternating with that truth in the psalm, the psalmist remembers that God is still the same God that he's known from the past of his people Israel, from his own past. Uh, God is still his hope. Mm. And so there's this alternating tension of life is really hard and God feels like he's absent. But I know that God is present and I know that he has been faithful in the past. I'm going to keep trusting him. And so I summed it up in verse 24, which I think is kind of the key truth of God that shapes the praise at the end of the psalm. 24 says, God has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. Uh, or as I put it, God uh, is not ashamed of the misery of the miserable. Mm. He draws near to us in our suffering rather than keeping his distance from us. So that's the kind of stuff that we were looking at. Mm. Yeah, it's such a, a blessing to have this kind of a psalm in our Bibles. Mm. Um, and we got a few questions in that we're keen to tackle today. Um, so keen to just jump straight in. Um, I think a lot of us were struck by the way we see Jesus in mm. this psalm. Um, and someone asked, so how is it that those who read the Old Testament, agree with it, believe it, um, can not believe that Jesus is Messiah and not see that Psalm 22 is a foreshadowing of Christ? Mm. Yeah, good question to ponder. Uh, and, you know, if you have any Jewish friends around, you can go and have a conversation with them. That would be a worthwhile thing. You might get a chance to introduce them to Jesus. Mm. Uh, I think interesting thing about Psalm 22 very much all of the gospel writers pick up that Jesus lived this experience. Mm. But within the psalm itself, there's nothing that points to this as being about the Messiah per se. Mm. Uh, the only thing that is in that direction is the fact that it's a Davidic psalm. David was the Christ, the Messiah, the kind of prototype that Jesus then fulfills as the Messiah. But that doesn't mean that not all of David's psalms are specifically messianic and mm. looking ahead at the Christ. So I don't think there's anything in Psalm 22 that says this is what the Messiah's experience will be like. It's not prophecy in that sense. Mm. It's more that Psalm 22 speaks of the human experience of suffering and then we see that Jesus lives that experience to its fullest extent. Mm. 
So in that way, I can understand if people might not say that this is about Jesus, because mm. uh, it is about humanity generally. It's something that we can all sing. Uh, but wow, isn't it phenomenal to see that, hey, Jesus actually has entered in and experienced the same suffering and even more suffering uh, or a, a deeper suffering than we have felt. Mm. Yeah, to, to see that Jesus was truly human and experienced mm what it means to suffer as a human, which I hope we'll probably get to look at more in first term as we go through Hebrews yeah, as well. It's true. It's true. Um, but there's no specific messianic character sitting mm, in this That's term. right. That's right. Yeah, okay. I think the other thing I was just thinking about reading that question as well was just going, I think we can ask that of a whole uh, host of people. I mean, you see Jesus come into the world as we read the Gospels, and yet people don't recognize mm. him for who he is. They yeah. see the miracles he does. They hear his teaching, uh, but they don't recognize him. Yeah. Um, and so I think sometimes it's just we are blinded. <laughs> yeah, totally right. And and other parts of the Old Testament that would be more true of, you know, Isaiah mm. 53, for instance, some of those things that are messianic uh, that people choose not to see. Mm. Mm. Um, thanks Lachlan Um, our second question is dealing with that idea I think it gets raised in verse 1 of the singer crying out my God my God why have you forsaken me and they've asked uh, did God the Father forsake Jesus at the cross what's the nature of forsaking and would that have any implication on the Trinity if God the Father forsook the Son yeah, what a question. Uh, let me just clarify that that language of forsaking, like I said on Sunday, it's not a word that we use often. I don't mm. go around talking <laughs> about forsaking things. I said it at my wedding, forsaking all others. I'll be true to candy. Uh, but it just means abandoning, so leaving behind, abandoning. Um, and this it's a significant question. I kind of I wonder what Trinitarian or Christological heresy I want to fall into today as we talk about this. Uh there's actually been, I, I don't know if you're aware, Susan, there's a bit of a resurgence at the moment of classical Trinitarianism. Uh, so a couple of books that I've read in the last couple of years, uh, All That Is In God by James Dolezal, kind of highlighting the classical doctrine of divine simplicity, mm. that God is simple, there are no parts in God, and talking about the implication of that for the Trinity. Uh, that is, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not separate parts within mm. God because that would mean that God is not simple. Uh, and then there was a book by Matthew Barrett that was a bit simpler than um, James Dolezal's <laughs> one. Matthew Barrett's book was called Simply Trinity. Uh, again, in this direction of going, you know, the way evangelicals have been talking about Jesus and the Father perhaps has strayed, so they argue, away from classical Trinitarian language. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm still wrestling with those ideas because I've grown up in an evangelical tradition. I've grown up talking about the Father and the Son, uh, using language of them as persons that these books are now critiquing and going, no, no, that's too much distinction between the persons. Mm -hmm. uh, you're underplaying the oneness of God. So there, there's some background for you. <laughs> Not things I knew, so that's good background. It, the conversation in the evangelical tradition, I think it got started a few years back with, um, here's some more theological terms for you, the eternal functional subordination of the Son. Mm. 
Mm, I have heard of this one. Yeah, I did hear about this. So that kind of kicked things off going in eternity past. So eternal was the son subordinate to the father. Mm. Um, Now there's a heresy called subordinationism. That's about, you know, the son in his nature being subordinate to the father. We want to say that's not the case. The father and the son, one God, equally God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, as the creed says. Um, I feel like we're digressing here, but this is all helpful (laughs) background, I think, to where this question hits. Because on the cross, if God is one, then how can we say that the Father has forsaken or abandoned the Son? Mm. They're one God. Uh, That's a tricky question. Mm. And so how you answer this might lead you to implications about the trinity you might land in say tritheism and thinking that there are three gods that the father is a separate god than the son mm. and that's how the father can abandon the son uh, we want to say no that's not the case there's one god um, one god in three persons i think it would also be an error to go the other way and just remove the language of abandonment and say well no that can't have any true sense to it because that would then undermine the oneness of God. So somehow we have to find a way of that making sense. Yeah. Does that make sense, Susan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To marry those two things together. We we worship one God, but we're not going to just say what Jesus said on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's some flippant comment that we can just ignore. Correct. Correct. I feel like I've said more long words in the last two minutes there than I like to say in my whole life. So I'm sorry <laughs> for those who are listening for all the... Technical terminology there. Uh, Technical terminology helps us because it's like a suitcase that you can pack lots into. Mm. Uh, And so we don't always have time to unpack the suitcase and discover what the words mean. So we put them together and learn the words and then we can discuss that. Um, Let me give you my answer to the question though. So the question, did the father forsake or abandon Jesus at the cross? I think we have to say that in some way the answer is yes. Uh, Otherwise we lose the emotional weight of saying with Romans, or Paul in Romans, that God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, mm. how will he not also with him give us all things? You know, there's a real cost that God bore on the cross, and the language of the Bible of that is father and son. Even John 3.16 that we mentioned on Sunday, uh, God so loved the world that he sent his son, he gave his son, There's a real giving, I think, Mm. the father giving the son. And so there has to be enough distinction between the persons for that language to not just make logical sense, but I think emotional sense, because those passages are calling an emotional response from Mm. us, uh, calling us to trust in the God who would act in this way. If there's no cost, then what happens to our trust in that God. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. There was a, a real cost paid at the cross. It wasn't just a kind of symbolic thing that didn't have a, a real kind of price to it. Correct. That's that's my thinking of this. Now, how do, like what language do we put that? I don't really know. I don't I don't understand. I think there's a mystery beyond our comprehension of what that separation of the Father and the Son at the cross might have looked like. Mm. Uh, the son, Jesus, is taking at that point the punishment that we deserve for our sin, which is the anger and wrath of God and the abandonment of God as he gives us over 
to what we want. Uh, that's huge. I can't understand that, the, the idea of some kind of rift between the Father and the Son in the one God. Uh, but I think my lack of understanding makes me appreciate all the more that the eternal God, who is sinful, who is one, could somehow experience that for me. Mm. Oof, that blows my mind. Mm. And it elevates the sense of the cost at the cross. So I think we do have to say yes the father abandoned the son on the cross, but didn't abandon entirely. It was then the father that rose Christ back from the dead, mm. Peter's language of Acts 2. We sometimes think Jesus rose himself from the dead and some passages of Scripture talk in that way, but the language of Acts 2, at least, is the father raising the son by the spirit in Hebrews 13. Uh, so all three persons of the Trinity at play in the mm. resurrection of Jesus. So it wasn't total abandonment, but there's an experience of abandonment that is what we deserve for our sin. Mm. Um, I don't know how long we've taken on this. I feel like we've taken too long, but <laughs> this it's that kind of question. It taps into the deep things of God. Um, the one other thing that might be worth saying, so the orthodox answer as the creeds, the early Christians wrestled with these kinds of questions. They spoke of Jesus as having two natures, human nature and divine nature together in one person. Hmm. So that's the Chalcedonian definition that presses into uh, those two natures. And it, I think my reading of those early Christians is that they would talk about this abandonment. They talk about Jesus suffering, Jesus' death, as something he experienced in his human nature rather than in his divine nature. I'm still wrestling with that language. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't... Um, I struggle with that language because mm. I think Jesus is one person. And so those creeds talk about Jesus, one person with two natures. So he, Jesus experienced death. Uh, I think they're just saying that the divine nature couldn't properly experience death. So that experience for Jesus is something that comes from his human nature. Mm. There you go. I've, I've probably become a heretic there somewhere. Uh, but come, come and talk to me if you've been reading stuff on the Trinity, if you've got better precision. Uh, help me as I wrestle with these things. Mm, yeah, it's a good thing to dwell on the deep things of God and just realise the magnitude of the cross and sometimes our inability to fully understand mm. all parts of it. Um, thanks for taking us through that anyway, Lachlan. Um, our next question, uh, still dealing with that idea of abandonment, uh, and this person's asked, so based on today's scripture, why did God abandon John the Baptist by allowing Herod to behead him? Uh, there seems to be lots of instances where God has abandoned his people. Mm. Look, I, I, I don't know who's put this one through for us. I'd love to have a chat. If you're listening to the extras, come find me on Sunday. Let's chat some more. Uh, it sounds like you're wrestling with a significant question for you. Mm. Uh, perhaps wondering, you know, is God really worth trusting? Will he abandon you one day? Uh, maybe you already feel like he has. Um, but I think there's an assumption in the question, isn't there, that just because John the Baptist was killed, that meant that God had abandoned him. Mm. I don't think that assumption is necessarily true. Uh, I think of Stephen in the book of Acts. Uh, Stephen preaches 
the gospel preachers against uh, the people who were there in Jerusalem that had uh, crucified Jesus. And they pick up stones and they stone him. So he dies too. But in his dying moment, Stephen looks up to the heavens and sees the Son of God on his throne uh, and says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's, he doesn't feel abandoned by God at that point as he dies. He knows that he's walking in the plan of God, uh, that God is with him along that journey. And so just because he dies doesn't mean that God has abandoned him. He looks forward to being with God for all eternity. Um, so I think Stephen gives you an example there of someone who, who dies without being abandoned. And that might be true for us as well. Uh, our journey might take us towards death, whether that be from sickness uh, or from persecution. Uh, those things don't imply that God has abandoned us. Mm. God is with us through that journey. It might feel like he's left, but that's why we need to come back and trust his word. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus sends out the disciples and says, I'm with you always, even mm. to the end of the age. Or Psalm 23, which has been a comfort for so many for so long. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You walk through that deep valley, but with God's presence, mm. with God's comfort. And so I take it John the Baptist didn't feel abandoned by God there in prison. And we don't get a sense of that in the narrative. Uh, but I trust that he knew God to be with him, even as he went through that. Mm. Yeah. So even if we suffer as Christians or even die as Christians, that doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. Yeah, not at all. Mm. That's a comfort. Um, uh, a bit of a, a heavy question, Nathan. Um, you shared with us that um, we need to be... I guess, sober-minded in realising that sometimes God may not answer our suffering before mm. death. Mm. Sometimes our um, pain or whatever we're going through will be chronic. We'll experience it our whole mm. life um, until death. Um, so this person's asked, how can we encourage people who are struggling with mental health issues to still seek help, mm. um, knowing that, um, especially if these particular people are convinced there's no hope. Um, and then just kind of as a follow-up to that, how do we get alongside them and mm. care for them in mm. that? What an important question, hey. There are mm. many in our society, in our church community, that are struggling mentally, uh, that have all sorts of ways in which their mental health is not well. Mm. Uh, and... We, there's all sorts of things that have kind of caused that societally, but just the reality of it is people are struggling. And it's good that we can aim to be a community that does help and mm -hmm. that does um, help others to find the help that will help them. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, I think, in, in answer to this question, we, we need as Christians to know our own limits. Um, I'm not a trained counsellor, I'm not a trained psychologist. There are all sorts of mental health issues that are beyond my pay grade. And it's good to be aware of that and to not think that I can be the answer to someone's, all of someone's problems. Mm. Uh, I can be a friend alongside them. I can be a stable and consistent support for them. Uh, but I may well need to help them to find some other help that is trained and that 
can see them hopefully make some strides forward. Um, the question asked just about mental health generally, I think there are some mental health issues that tend to be more chronic and persistent. You know, if someone's diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar, uh, there are things there that will, like we just kind of assume and know that that'll be a long journey. Uh, and it'll be a journey that comes with any tears as medication is sought that can help to alleviate the symptoms of those kinds of uh, illnesses. There are other issues that we might think of in different category of depression, anxiety, that uh, I don't know how to put it. I, I think those things we want quick fixes for. Mm. Um, whether we're suffering those ourselves or walking alongside someone who's suffering depression or anxiety, we kind of want it to be done with within a month and then we can get back to life as normal. Mm. Uh, that is generally not the way that those things work. Um, but in saying that, in the case of depression, medication has been helpful for lots of people. Uh, and over a course of time, has seen the symptoms of hopelessness and just that feeling of darkness has seen that lessen and shift and people be able to become more functional uh, in day-to-day -day life. So to that extent, I want to say we can help people by pointing them to those other helps. Um, that might be some medication that can help them to get some level of restoration. So not, not every sickness will be chronic. Mm. even though we have to have the realism that sometimes it might be. Mm. So we, we don't take away all hope, but we just have a realism that there might be a long road. Uh, I think that is important in supporting people as well. Um, I don't know. I, I think when we have a friend in our Christian circles who uh, is suffering from some depression, we might be okay at walking alongside them for a couple of months but then it starts to get draining mm. and we're just not so used to walking alongside someone for the long stretch. Mm. Uh, we've been culturally conditioned to accept things quickly or to expect things to happen quickly and we have to push against that in being a long-term support. Uh, one of the things that will mean is not, not being a sole support for a person but trying to work on a support network, a support team that together can be alongside someone who is struggling. Now, I'm sure that doesn't answer all aspects of this question. Um, do you, what, what are your thoughts on this, Suze? Do you want to throw in anything here as you've walked alongside people? Or? Mm. Um, yeah, I think just as you were saying that, um, being reminded that the aim is to walk with people for the long haul, so mm. to, to think about how you can do that well. And so I think it is important to think through... Um, having the support that you need so you can support them, mm. um, having other people around them not trying to be their only friend or their only support, um, uh, but also recognising that um, that then won't be easy for you either. Mm. Um, mm. I, I think sometimes it's we have this idyllic picture in our head of helping someone who's hurting will always feel really good because, um, you know, it's, I think in some ways, modelling what Jesus did of mm. uh, being caring and kind. 
And so I think we we have in our heads it'll it'll feel good doing this. Mm. Um, but I think sometimes the reality is we're gonna hurt a lot alongside them, and it's gonna be hard to watch someone you care about continue to suffer and not necessarily bounce back quickly mm. Um, mm. or yeah like get better quickly um so i think there's just a sense of as we go into this we need to recognize there'll be a cost um and to go but it's worth it to Mm. love and care for Mm. someone um yeah i think we were chatting a little bit before about um sometimes in the name of self-care we'll remove ourselves Mm. from from helping people um and just to be a bit wary of that as a christian um and instead to go to recognise there'll be a cost sometimes to caring for someone who's hurting, but to count that cost and say it's worth it because I mm. want to love in mm. the way that Jesus loved too. I want to be like him in that. Yeah. It's so hard, that kind of cultural conditioning, mm. self-care. Um, also, I think just we're in a society that defines people's worth by their productivity and their output. Mm. And so when someone is depressed, productivity and output drops. That's part of that illness uh, and in caring for them, our productivity output might drop because it just takes time and it takes time of sitting alongside seemingly doing nothing, but just your presence is helpful. Uh, And so, yeah, we're kind of culturally conditioned to want to get people back to being productive uh, and we need to push against that and just go, you're still valuable even now. God still loves you uh, and I deem it valuable to just sit here and be with you. Mm. And if we're not doing anything else, that's okay. We're here. We're together. And that is worthwhile. Um, So those kinds of things are really important and valuable. Mm. Uh, One one other truth that helps me in processing, you know, life generally, uh, I mentioned it on Sunday, God is the one that holds life and death in his hands. Um, He could take our life whenever he chooses to. That's a sobering reality. Uh, It's a helpful reality on the flip side that goes, if God hasn't done that, if God's woken you up to another day, he knows what he's doing. He's keeping you alive uh, and there's a purpose for that. And that purpose might simply be that you make it through today trusting God. Uh, that's good. Mm. By by enduring another day, trusting God, you are bringing great glory to God. Mm. Uh, and so we never want to slip into thinking that God's messed up by keeping us alive. He knows what he's doing. Uh, that has been a help for me in the past, uh, and I think it's a helpful truth to come back to. Mm. Yeah, it's been incredible encouragement to my faith in my life when I've seen friends who... Um, do struggle with their mental health, but they do keep clinging to Jesus um, Mm. and they keep trusting him even when their days are really hard. And for me, that just reminds me of how worthy he is, of how wonderful he is. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, I'm I'm thankful for the way that they glorify God and point me to him. Um, Thank you for that, Lachlan. Um, We have one more question left. which is, uh, does the Bible ever give explicit reasons for suffering? Or does it only really say how, despite the suffering, God uses it for good? Does it, does it give us mm. any other mm. reasons for suffering? 
Yeah. It's another question where we could spend a lot of time. I'm conscious of the time we've taken with some <laughs> of the other questions. So let me try to keep this one brief. In short, I'd say, no, the Bible doesn't give us explicit reasons for specific suffering. Mm -hmm. There are some instances in the Old Testament where God will say, because you've sinned in this way, I'm going to bring this kind of judgment. But none of that carries over into the kind of experience of suffering that we have today. We can't look at a particular sickness and God doesn't give us a reason for that specifically. Um, I was really helped in this by John Piper, one of his short look at the book videos. He talked about how the questions we want to answer when we're suffering are the why questions of, you know, why me? Why now? And why this particular suffering? And why is it taking this long? You know, those why questions we generally don't get answers to. But God does give us the bigger picture whys, which are not generally the ones we're asking in the midst of suffering, but he does tell us why there's suffering generally. Uh, and that would be a good place to end. Um, you know, the, the experience of suffering in the world comes as a result of our rebellion against God. Suffering was never God's intention for creation, not in Genesis. It's not his intention in Revelation. We're looking ahead to a world without suffering. Uh, suffering has come into the world because we rebelled against God. Uh, and so there are a few things that God then does with suffering in the world. Uh, you know, one, he uses it to bring people to repentance, to kind of turn away from that rebellion and come back to him. So Luke 13, Jesus' story of the tower, or not story, Jesus' reflection on the tower that fell and killed people is that it's so that people would repent and that we need to repent. Uh, 2 Corinthians would talk about for Christians how suffering produces reliance upon God, mm. makes us trust in God, the one who gives life even to the dead. Uh, Hebrews, that we're going to come to next term. Uh, Hebrews 12 will talk about suffering as discipline that God uses to refine our character as Christians. Uh, or Romans 8, um, where it talks about the futility of the world, mm. that the world is broken. Uh, it's a revelation thing that God wants to reveal to us our sin that we might then repent from it. Mm. Uh, and so there are some of the bigger picture why of suffering in the world. But like I say, we don't get the specifics. Why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Uh, those are the questions where we just need to come back and trust the God who is good mm. and who has a reason, even if he hasn't told us. And we look ahead to that world where God will wipe away our tears. I, I so love that picture once you experience the suffering in the world to see a God who cares deeply and who will be the one that comes in and wipes the tear away and welcomes us into eternal joy. Yeah, no more mourning or crying or pain. Mm. Um, yeah, we don't get those specific answers to the whys, but we do get comfort mm. knowing that they will not always be there. Yeah. God will do away with it all. Yeah. And he has already confirmed that through Jesus. Um, yeah. And we can hold on to that. Amen. Mm. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Lachlan. Thanks for tackling some really big questions. Um, and hopefully this has been helpful for anyone listening. Uh, if you do have more questions or um, want to talk this through further, um, Please grab Lachlan on Sunday or grab 
uh, one of the other pastors. I'm sure they'd love to um, chat through some of these questions yeah. further because they are they are big questions and um, they have a real impact on the way we live our lives. Thanks, Susan. Yeah, do come chat to us. Love to chat some more, pray with you. Uh, and this coming Sunday, we'll be in the book of Hebrews. So yeah. look forward to that. We'll see you then.